0: So if you love the show, please donate. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a great day. I've put together an episode filled with some of my favorite reveals from interviews I've done, and I think you're going to love it. So, here we go. Here's the first one.
1: AOK. AOK.
0: As a child of a single working mother growing up in New York City, Laura Linney was on her own a lot. In this anecdote about her childhood, Laura tells us the story of a very unlikely babysitter who was always looking out for her.
3: So I was a latchkey kid, you know, and there were many of us during that time. It was not unusual for kids to be, you know, out and in hanging out in Central Park after school and getting to school by yourself. What part of the city? 64th between 1st and York, okay. near, near the hospital. It was a different type of New York where m- most stores were privately owned. There were small businesses everywhere. And they knew the neighborhood. Like, everyone knew that there was this nurse who had this kid. And, and they all sort of made sure I was okay and how you doing. And Rocky Graziano lived in my building, which was a riot. So And he was always like, you know,
0: anybody bothers you, you tell me Uncle Rocky, he will come and give him one or two.
3: <laughs> and he dated, he dated twins, which I loved. Were they identical? Yeah, they were identical twins with, like, long blonde hair and they wore cowboy hats. And he would put one hand in one back pocket and one in the other and sort of, you know, manage them up and down the street. It was oh hysterical. God. But I loved him. He was yes. very, very sweet to me. Uncle Rocky. He was Uncle Rocky. You know, and I felt, consequently, I felt very protected. Yeah. But, you know, the neighborhood sort of looked out for me.
0: On January 25, 1996, at the young age of 35, Jonathan Larson, the playwright and composer of the international hit musical Rent, was found dead in his New York City apartment. Earlier that evening, the cast of Rent had performed the final dress rehearsal to an ecstatic audience. Jonathan didn't live to see what quickly became the Broadway phenomenon of his musical, but rent star, Anthony Rapp, was on the podcast, and he told me the story of his last night with Jonathan Larson. Here it is.
6: December 24th, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, from here on in I shoot without a script. See if anything comes of it instead of my old
2: shit. We were doing it at the New York Theater Workshop. Okay. He was alive for the dress rehearsal. Right. The invited dress rehearsal. Our, our mutual friend John Benjamin Hickey. I'll never forget his reaction after the show. He ran up to me and he went, You guys are all fucking incredible. I wanted to fuck each and every one of you. <laughs>
0: That's the highest praise. I know. What higher praise is there? Especially it from John like, Benjamin I Hickey. Wow. Like,
2: yeah, no. Jonathan was very much alive for the dress rehearsal. I mean, it was, it, it was an amazing. I mean, I've been a part of some really, you know, Six Degrees of Separation was a big deal. Yep. I had a small part in it. Yes. It was yes. a very big deal. But yes. I can remember the dress rehearsal for Six Degrees of Separation. We were playing the Mitzi House, which in Lincoln Center is the small theater downstairs, and the Beaumont is the Broadway theater upstairs, which was playing Some Americans Abroad, which is a pretty quiet play. Right. The laughter and cheering from Six Degrees of Separation went through. The ceiling, so that the actors on stage of Some Americans Abroad were hearing it. It was that electric. So that was my closest sort of touchstone. And then Six right. Degrees* went on to be this huge success. The Rent dress rehearsal was like that. And Jonathan was surrounded by people afterwards. And it wasn't just his friends, I promise you. It no, was like, he
0: had it, though. He got yeah, to experience yes. that.
2: So people glommed on him, wanted to talk to him. You know, my agent. Tears in her eyes, shaking. You know, so... That happened. And the New York Times had sent Anthony Tomasini. He was at the—I don't know what his job is currently still, but he was writing for, for like, the classical music. Right. And it was the 100th anniversary of La Boheme.
0: Right. So perfect. Coincided. perfect story. So he's like,
2: oh, I should go check out this East Village adaptation. So he just happened to be there. He wasn't going to—he wasn't reviewing it, you know, just to have included in his piece. Mm -hmm. He was so struck by what he'd seen that he asked Jonathan to sit for an on-the-spot interview. So, you know, Jonathan, 35 years old, had been plugging away, plugging away, plugging away. Nothing had happened and mm-hmm. was on the verge. And he knew, you know, one of the things that's been the 20th anniversary this year. And so, like, his old friend, Victoria Leacock, has been sharing some stories. And yeah. the other day she posted something about Facebook because people were talking about, like, the different perceptions of how much can we ever – can we know – how much he did know or didn't know of what was to come. And she was like, no, absolutely, he knew that he that he he had a hit. Again, you never know for sure, but he was so confident. I mean, that brings me some comfort. So the last time I saw him was through the box office window, which was the only quiet place in the little New York theater workshop play. That was the only place to go was where he was doing his interview with Anthony Tomasini. He knew enough about everything to know that an interview with the New York Times is a big deal. So I saw him and of course I was gonna see him the next day. And then he went home afterwards and he put on a kettle on the stove to make some tea and he dropped dead on his kitchen floor and his and his roommate came home in the middle of the night and found him. Five hundred twenty-five thousand
7: six hundred minutes. Five hundred twenty-five thousand moments oh dear.
0: My next guest, Griffin Dunn is gonna share a story with you. He had just gotten to New York City. I think on the day this story happened, he was about to start acting class with the renowned Uta Hagen, acting teacher to many greats. And he had on this really great coat and he walked into a supermarket and he was really surprised to find that he could fit as many things into his coat pocket as he could into a shopping cart. And so he did, and this turned out to be not such a great idea. Here's
2: Griffin.
5: I went to the neighborhood playhouse, and um, my first week there, before I went to the class, I went to the A and P across the street, Uh supermarket, and I went to just get it like a few things, and I had an enormous coat. And um, one of the things was Cheese Whiz. I I don't know delicious.
0: When do you, you don't know if they had triscuits, that's the best day well, ever.
5: So I loaded up, and yeah. I realized my pockets were so big. I mm-hmm. thought, why don't I? Why am I paying for this? Crazy. Look how look at these pockets, and look how few items. These <laughs> it are. caught the attention of the security guard, mm-hmm. who informed the New York City police, and so I was arrested, and led by, in handcuffs, in front of the neighborhood playhouse. <laughs> First year student And they're taking The back of my head And putting it Under the door And I've still got My big coat on And I'm taken to You know The tombs Oh my god And I go from cell To cell To cell You know Waiting for night court I was sure. there at Seven in the morning We're now like Three in the morning I've earned the Nomenclature The cheese whiz kid <laughs> The other inmates found it hilarious. Of course. That, she, that I took Cheese Whiz.
0: Because the other inmate was like, killed seven people well, you know, on my way.
5: <laughs> my last S- uh, son of w- Sam. That yeah, was the other that guy. Great right,
0: right guy. <laughs> it was so sweet.
5: Um, Misunderstood. Uh, absolutely. Um, he brought his own hot plate. <laughs> um, he, uh, but anyway, actually, does the, the anyone have a ritz cracker? Oh no. Terri- uh, well, okay. I, you know, we were. I was going to go. We were all going to go to Rikers if the judge didn't get me. And Rikers, I was not looking forward to. It was all fun and games until we had to go to Rikers. And I'm in the final cell before I finally get to the judge. It's taken all day, and I'm in a cell with. I'm 18. These two kids are 17. The way I know that is they're reading the latest edition. Of the new york post of which they're on the cover for killing a columbia student
0: you've got to be kidding. and they're looking
5: at their picture i look at look at how my yeah i'm not so sure and they're like a couple of actors you know
0: oh complaining about
5: their headshot and then the a cop comes in and goes oh we can only take one of you that's my english irish accent okay. he wasn't uh old old o'reilly anyway said we can only take one of you uh we'll take the youngest one here and I said, I'm the youngest. I'm the youngest. Mm-hmm. I'm the
0: youngest. Well, you're the only non-murderer. And I said, I'm
5: Irish. I'm Irish. I'm Irish, just like you.
0: <laughs> I'm griffin Agree, i Paddy. My teaneck Irish accent is fantastic. <laughs> so I'll take you, meaning you get to see the judge.
5: Oh, I get to see the right? judge. Right, that's judge what it goes, meant. Why is this in my courtroom? He brings the security guard to the bench.
0: I'm picturing and goes, Harry Anderson from like the sitcom <laughs> yeah. Night Court. Like, first of all, give me that Trisket. Bring that here, young man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bring that cheese whisk.
5: It was a total sitcom. Mm-hmm. And all instead of yelling at me, he yelled at the security guard for arresting me. And then he was shamefaced, and I had to take a subway back. And we were the only two on the platform at the end of
0: <laughs> you and <the> Earl. <laughs> You're like, I'm really sorry about the cheese waste. Really, yeah. So you don't have a record from that. I've
5: off, I, I've wanted to look for it, but I can't find it. But you I wanted- can
0: travel freely between countries. You're not like Roman Polanski. No, like exactly. you're allowed back. No. You're allowed I, back I'll, in when you leave. I, I, absolutely.
5: G-Officer Krupp, were very upset. We never had the love that every child ought to get. We ain't no delinquents, we're misunderstood. Deep down inside us, there is good.
0: There is good. So my friend Cynthia Nixon is an only child, and coincidentally both of her parents were also only children. And she grew up in New York City. Her parents were pretty bohemian, and there was this expectation, as she describes it, that she would always fit into their very adult world. And so she very quickly learned how to be an adult. So here she is filling me in on life in the Nixon household. I feel like
8: this is a segue into an important part of me, right? Which is that my mother had me late, late for the time that she was living in the 60s. She was 36 when she had me. I was her only child. She wasn't planning on having children. I'm an only child, and she was an only child, mm. and my father was an only child. You know, there was not a lot of um, you know, my childhood that was kid stuff. There was a lot of like, you're five now. Let's go see Stacy Keach and Hamlet. You know, there was a lot of 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 movies and plays. Mm. And Partly maybe because I was way too young for these things that I was seeing, but also because I think it was what my mother loved to do, we would go. But that was what we had to talk about. Right. We didn't talk about our feelings. No. We didn't talk about my imaginary friends. We talked about both of our imaginary people that we'd seen up on stage. Because my parents were old and because they had me, like my mother was 36, my dad was 44, which at the time to have a child, like right. my mother would clip articles out of the paper about Cary Grant to be like, he's old and See? he's a dad and look how happy he is. Right.
5: Kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today kids who can understand anything they say
0: now quite the reverse of being an only child is my husband Dominic Famusa's story where Dominic is one of ten children nine out of ten actually and he's also a twin and here he tells us what it was like growing up in a house with that many kids
7: and only one refrigerator <laughs> You know, I get asked about my big family, and I, I always say it's like I didn't think twice about it. I mean, it didn't really occur to me that this was totally strange. I mean, obviously, most kids I knew did not have anywhere near as many siblings as I did. But, you know, I, I had this healthy sense as a child that whatever I did, whatever my parents were doing, was like the thing that should be done. That's you nice. Know? Yeah, it was. It was good. Do you feel
0: like it made you feel special?
7: You know, because I had so many older siblings— my name carried a certain, you know, cachet as it were as I went through the school system. Uh, so that was kind of cool because most of my siblings I think had made a good impression on most teachers before I got there. So, so you kind of start the day with, you know, with a good check mark already mm-hmm. in there.
0: When you share the same last name as nine other people in a community, how do you get well, noticed for being an individual?
7: I was a little different in that I was very into sports and I was, uh, you know, I, I, sports was something that I, at my level at that, at that school, I, I excelled at. So mm-hmm. I was the starting quarterback. I was this, you know, one of the starting pitchers on the baseball team. I was the starting point guard on the basketball team. So, so that was one way to sort of, you know, create an identity, you know, of, of my own, but, you know, getting back to this idea, I just, I had a very healthy sense of, uh, of security. And, and I remember, um, which, which I think looking back was, was sort of kind of unwarranted, but why, my dad, I think, you know, it, it, there was a lot of pressure to raise 10 children and, uh, I'm sure it was stressful, but I, I never, uh, you weren't aware a, of that. well, not as a young person for sure. And, and, uh, things would happen where like things would break down in our, in our house or like, I remember, uh, we had a blacktop driveway that was crumbling and, you know, my friends would be like, when are you guys going to, you know, get this. Paved over, and I'd be like, "Oh no, we like it this way. <laughs> this is a choice." You know, <laughs> those aren't
0: weeds. That's know? a garden. Or
7: like my friends would come over and open the refrigerator because they couldn't believe that uh, my father had bought more than one gallon of milk at a time. And like they would play a game before they opened it, where they like they bet how many gallons are going to be in the fridge when they open it. And I think the record was five gallons of milk.
0: Continuing now with some of my favorite reveals from Little Known Facts is Molly Ringwald. Molly grew up with a blind father, but that never seemed unusual to her. It was more unusual that he was a jazz musician who worked completely different hours than most of her friends' dads. So listen as Molly describes her take on growing up with her jazz musician dad. Have a moment where you realize, like, oh, my dad isn't like other dads. Where you had an understanding
9: that he was special in all of these ways. To me, he was always special because he was just so different from everyone else, and it really the the blindness was, I would say, a little bit low on the list you know he was he was a musician um you know it was the 70s he had a big bushy beard I've never actually seen my father without a beard he grew a goatee when he was about 15 so he could uh work in clubs Uh uh-huh he had dark hair I mean people he was very striking to look at And I remember my friends sometimes would be scared of him at first because he looked so different than all the dads looked in the 70s, you know. And also he kept different hours. Um, You know, he didn't wake up and go to work like all the other dads did. You know, he slept late and then he would pretty much work all night in clubs. And, you know, that's how he supported the family was, you know, as a working musician. And also he he had a different sense of humor. My dad has a little bit of a subversive sense of humor. And he just always seemed very confident it seemed to me that he could do anything he wanted to do amazing. you know he would he would get up on the roof and fix the antenna or he would you know he would put shelves together and you know he, he's better at giving directions than than anyone else and you know he did all of the the scheduling in the house because my mom hates to talk on the phone and you know he there was just never it was never really an issue um, and of course I never grew up with a different dad so I didn't right. really have much to compare it to. Catherine
0: Irby, who is just the most magnificent actress, who many people know from her years on Law and Order, Criminal Intent, although her film and theater career is pretty incredible as well. But she tells a very personal and intimate story on the podcast about a huge thing that happened to her when she was in high school. And this is her telling me about the decision to leave high school before it was done. So here's Catherine. And I really want to thank her for sharing this. The response to this story has been extraordinary. It is incredibly inspiring, and I'm sure you will find it as such.
1: I just hit my teenage years and was uh, found myself to be deeply unhappy. Okay. And um, really angry and... I felt then that I had been this good little girl right. my whole You did it all life. right. I did it all right. I had this smile on my face, and I only—I ne- I didn't feel anything. You know, it was all my head, really. I wasn't really connected from the neck down. And there was also something really romantic about suffering yes. <laughs> and suffering for love. And I had these weird ideas like that. I really it was just finding myself unhappy, mm-hmm. and I I just I kind of took a rebellious turn, and I was tired of pleasing my parents, and really tired of the grind of being a good student, and I actively sought out a group of uh, friends that were kind of in the same path, mm-hmm. and. We all went down the drain together, pretty much,
0: so what grade was this when you sort of checked out
1: of traditional school? Um, my junior year mm-hmm. of high school, I dropped out. And you know, I don't talk about it a lot because I feel like it brings it it's it's a hard thing to talk about, of course. um, it's painful. I think for my parents, you know, I felt a lot of shame about it. um. But more and more, I feel like it might help people for me to talk about it. I mean, I was really lucky. You know, I got into cars with people who were drunk Mm -hmm. and we crashed. And, you know, I I probably shouldn't be here given the odds. But I've always sort of felt like I had a guardian angel or some kind of, you know, spirit in me that was going to survive and i was really lucky i mean my parents cared deeply about me so i i dropped out of school i left home i lived in in my best friends with my best friends family and it was when i was living with my best friends family um that i dropped out and my parents saw that as a real warning sign mm-hmm. and we had found this alternative high school that was in western massachusetts called the Desisto Dis- at stockbridge school which was basically a therapeutic community and They mortgaged their house and they sent me to this school. And initially, it was kind of against my will. I had I had a schedule that I wanted to do it on. It was certainly that I wasn't going to go during the summer. I was, you know, (laughs) no, no, certainly not with Crystal
0: Lake there, (laughs)
1: exactly. Nantasket Beach. I had (laughs) plans, and they hilarious. Thwarted. They were thwarted. Plan thwarters. Mm, exactly I knew it exactly and so i went to the school and and there were you know my people
0: When Matthew Broderick was starting out, he was very well known, very quickly, for being in this trilogy of Neil Simon plays on Broadway. One of the plays did a national tour either before or after it came to Broadway. I can't remember, but this one was called Brighton Beach Memoirs, and it was an autobiographical play, and Matthew basically plays Neil Simon in these plays, and they were all very much focused on what it was like to grow up as Neil Simon in Brooklyn, and one night in the story that Matthew shared with me, he talks about one of the best onstage pranks that ever happened. And this is between him and an actor named Tim Busfield. And uh, all right, I'll, I'll let Matthew tell it.
6: I have a secret desire hiding deep in my soul. It sets my heart afire to see me in Tim Busfield uh, was a thirty-something, thirty-something fame. fame, and a very good director too, and a great fellow. He was my understudy, as it happened, in uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs. We were very young. <laughs> we were in um, at, in San Francisco and uh, at Fisherman's Wharf, like a, this touristy kind of area, and there was some kind of joke shop, and I bought a little package of of, gar- of candy that was tasted of garlic. It starts out good. I think it was gum or a sucker. And it's hilarious because the person thinks it's really good and they have it for a while and then it tastes really bad. And so it's really funny. And um, I gave a piece to Tim and I was like, it's going to taste funny, but if you stick with it, you know, it's going to, believe me, it's worth it. This is the most delicious thing I've ever had. And I gave it to him and he really sucked on it and really, you know, it worked. It looked just like the picture that the, that the. Candy came in, like the guy slapping his forehead and going, garlic, you know, it's awful. And it all worked perfectly. And I was so happy with my joke.
0: A really good prank.
6: My prank, yes. And then uh, that night in the show, I had a very long piece of this. I would read from my journal and there was one very long, like, you know, single spaced page thing that I would read. And I had it in my actual journal because I thought, why would I learn that? I should just read it. So I open to the page to read this little monologue, and it's gone. There's just a piece of paper <laughs> over it, <laughs> and written in very big pencil is garlic comma ha exclamation point and I'm in the middle of you know there's this is a, a fifteen hundred seat theater or something like twelve hundred and uh, and I see and I look up and in the by the light behind the orchestra, I can see Tim Busfield with his red hair laughing under the light and uh it horrible.
4: Oh horrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: I remember the day my sisters brought home the album Purple Rain. We listened to it. Our minds were blown. And from that moment on, we were Prince fans. And when he passed this year, it was, it was devastating. When Kristen Chenoweth came on the show and told me how she first came to know him, And become close friends with him it's to this day one of the highlights of my time as a podcast host so I'm so thrilled to get to share with you Kristen's story of the day her manager called and said hey what are you doing Prince wants to meet you here's Kristen telling it
4: I knew him Um, for a time and he was over the years very encouraging to me Mm. and you know even though he was a friend that I didn't see. So how did you even connect? My manager my then manager called me and said Prince would like to meet you know invite you to dinner so I think I'm going there thinking I'm having dinner with a group and it's just me and him and all he wanted to do was talk about
0: music. At his home? Yes. So you you're like oh okay yes and you're writing down 433 yeah. this is, okay um <laughs> that's
4: so <exactly>. you <laughs> and i drove up and there was this huge gate with right. the symbol of prince when he was not prince oh
0: the ankh yeah. uh, yes <laughs> on the door formerly known as prince <laughs> that's right yes. and then there
4: was a big it was like little orphan annie's mansion and there was a big staircase with a purple rug and there was somebody waiting for me to greet me and take me into library and who like a butler like yes a formal yes okay and, Ms. I, Chenoweth. and it was so i'm like i think i was in a I remember being in a Gap jacket. I was like, oh, I should have dressed up. Yeah, you should have. He took me, <laughs> you you know I should have, and took me to the library. And I wasn't snooping, but it's hard not to...
0: With Colonel Mustard and a candlestick. <laughs> Got it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> exactly. So I'm looking around, and I look in, and I see that he has a Bible, and he has some really other cool books. And I thought... And he's definitely a spiritual person, and of course we got we got on great. And
0: most of us have not been in that situation, although we have been in libraries of people we don't know, maybe waiting for them to come down. But what's right. the very first moment? Like, this is Prince. Do you know what to call him? Even okay. Does he, how does he introduce himself? Okay,
4: Prince. Okay. So I am, there's this long hallway, and it was marble, and I heard. And I got nervouser and nervouser and right. nervouser, and it took forever. It was the longest clicking heels coming down the hallway I'd ever heard. I thought it would never. And he comes in and he's looking fantastically hot, just how he it's was. Beautiful. He was, and he had his he had his hair and his, he had on a white silk suit. And he said, Hi, Kristen, I'm so glad you came. And I went, I am. I don't know what to say to you right now. I'm and I think I said, Do I call you Prince? What do I and he goes, You call me Prince, but just relax. I just want to tell you how much you've inspired me. I remember when we had salmon, which um I don't eat fish you know, and I just remember hearing my mom's voice go, You choke that salmon down.
0: eat it. <laughs> tough love exactly you mentioned mentioned the tough love mothers and
4: daughters (laughs) eat that salmon that's exactly what i'm gonna be i'm gonna get you with that salmon and i choked (laughs) it down alana with my water and then he goes i want to show you something i just love to watch and took me down to his movie room and he played candide this opera i did for pbs and he played the aria i sang and i said no no we don't have to watch this he goes no i think it's important when someone inspires you that you admire and you look at their skill i want you to know that that this is inspiring to me and i mean really so
0: you're watching your performance in the opera with him with Prince, I said, right. "Is Prince showing me me?" What's happening right yeah. now? Yeah, I was like, "No," and then he
4: said, "You want to see my guitars and I, g- uh, guitars?" And I said, "Whoa!" Well, <laughs> I wh- said, yes. "Yes, I do." I said, yes. "Well, thank you." Who <laughs> 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 are you all of a sudden? I don't know. All of a sudden, I've become <laughs> you are Loretta Lynn. I've, I've become Christy Dawn. Is what happened. <laughs> you were. you we know go her? Right back. Yes. So we we go down. I'm glad you asked me this. Yes. So we go down. and We see all these guitars in this other room. I mean, probably thirty on stands and he said, Do you wanna play one? I said, Yeah, I'm terrible. But I picked up a he goes, Pick up that white one. And I picked it up, it had a pretty long grip. He goes, Flip it over. And I flipped it over and it was all scratched. I said, What happened? He goes, That was Elvis's belt. Okay. I'm like if I had a door We're out. <laughs> We're out. <laughs> I it's very hard not to be intimidated. Yeah. And I said, I can't believe you have his guitar and he goes oh I loved him but I'm glad you said you loved him because what an incredible person and musician and I know there's all this cloud of things around his death but I choose to really look at the way he lived and so you stayed friends yeah every once in a while he would say I saw you on this and you're great and another time had invited me over after the Emmys one night and he said invite whoever you want and he did a three-hour concert just for you and your friends yeah and I was like asking people at the Emmys, I know I don't
0: really know you, but do you want to come to <laughs> I have a free ticket to his living room. Yeah, do you want like, to come? Yes. And that he played is for
4: incredible. three
0: hours. There you have it, some of my favorite reveals from Little Known Facts. Hope you enjoyed it. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are Little Known Facts that you know. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast